to Mark chapter 15. Today is Communion Sunday, as um, many of you are aware, the third Sunday of the month. And I find it sort of apropos <laughs> that we are going to contemplate the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And so uh, I'm going to be very text-oriented here this morning. We'll look at Jesus crucified, Jesus mocked, his death, and his burial. We're going to look at the significance of the crucifixion and what it means to us. If we're going to stay on track with the Lord, we must have a regular reflection upon what was done for us and what it means to it to us, the significance of the death of Jesus Christ. You know, when you are familiar with the Bible and spiritual things become familiar, it's easy to uh, lose the impact or even allow them to shape you. You just become lax. And so I'm thankful that the Lord has ordained communion as a reminder. This doing remembrance of me. We need to be reminded. We need to go back over the basics and really let it sink into our spirit so that we really appreciate. Sometimes we think that God is so removed from our pain and from our suffering that he, he just can't relate to us. Well, I declare to you that no one has suffered greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. Could you imagine being perfect, being surrounded by, nobody, by all sinners, not one saint among them, for his, all his years on the earth. That's enough to drive anybody crazy. <laughs> Yet he came and he lived among us. Never once was he rude. Never once was he unkind. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. I, am just, I just marvel at the way Jesus suffered. And yes, Jesus died. Jesus suffered death. We're all going to suffer death. And so, our Savior, our brother, who is amazing to me that God would condescend to the point where he would call us brothers and sisters. That is just amazing to me, the humility of God. But I want to look again at the significance of the crucifixion and what it means to us. So we'll pick it up here in verse 21 of chapter 15. Then they compelled, well actually we should back up uh, verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they put the purple uh, off of him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, and he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above. 
king of the Jews. That could be a sermon right there in and of itself. Think about crucifixion is given a description in great detail if you're familiar with Psalm 22, which was written probably about 1,500 years before uh, crucifixion was actually invented. Uh, Cruelest way for a human being to die. And as Jesus is making his way out uh, via De Rosa, the way to uh, the cross, he was com- Simon was compelled to carry the cross for Jesus. And in reality, the person who was the criminal who was being crucified, it was on them to carry the cross. They were guilty, so they needed to bear their own cross. So it's really fitting that Jesus being so weakened from the beatings and, and the mistreatment, the lack of fluid intake and all, his physical strength waned and therefore uh, he had help. Simon was drafted to carry the cross for Jesus. Simon really represents all of us who should carry our own cross to the cross and ourselves be crucified because of the debt that we owe God, the sins that we have committed. And so Jesus really should be the one walking free from the cross. But yet he chose to bear the cross for us. Simon bared and carried the cross for the innocent one, and he, the one who took our place. The word there in verse 21, compelled, means to be pressed into service. Simon was forced to do this, and yet Jesus gave himself willingly. As he said, you do not take my life from me, but I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I also have the power to take it up again. Jesus was not murdered. Jesus was not a martyr. Jesus gave himself willingly. Jesus was compelled. He was forced into service out of love for you. Out of love for me. And really all our service, all the deeds that we do should be out of, motivated out of love. We do what we do because we love people. We care for them. This is what God does on our behalf. It's always God's will. It's always God's initiative. It's always for God's purpose that God might be blessed. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, declared, uh, wrote this, Jesus declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So it is the spirit of holiness prior to his death that gave him the empowerment to do that. One of the things that we must remember when it comes to the will of God, remember that's how Jesus prayed in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. Everything that we do in our life should be initiated by God. That's our position as believers. The way of man is not within him. Those of us who walk with the Lord know that we are ignorant of God's plans and purposes. They must be revealed to us. We must have revelation of what God's will is. And 
He's the one who initiates the work within our life. He's the one that's guiding it. And if he's doing that, then he will have his blessing upon it. If it's not done and it's done otherwise, then we can not expect God to bless it. That is the way it is to work. Jesus had the power, had the strength, had the grace to suffer because he was in the will of his Father. He went to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And now, if you're familiar with the layout there in Jerusalem, it's not sort of on the north side there, Mount Moriah, actually. And, and there, it, there was a road there in front of it. You come outside the city wall and the gates there to the north. Um, it's all crooked, kind of like Greenville. You know, there's nothing that's, you know, uh, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for um, on a grid? We like grid, you know like 90 degree angles, you know. <laughs> Nothing like that there in Jerusalem because of the terrain. But as you look out from the city wall and you look towards Mount Calvary, uh, the place of the skull, that little cliff there, that sort of uh, quick, uh, very steep descent, if you look at it, it looks like a human skull. And you can go on, you can Google that. Just Google Golgotha and you'll see the, the picture there. Well, up on that mount would have was the place of execution. That was the place that the Romans chose uh, to do their executions. And one of, the, yeah, yeah, that's, that's it right there. I forgot about, good you picked that up, thank you. <laughs> I forgot to, I emailed that earlier. <laughs> you see the, it's not, you know, someone's helped us out there with the transposition there, but yeah. So when you, Look at that situation there. There's a, the main, one of the main travel roads right between that skull, Golgotha, and the city wall. So you get the idea that people were traveling through there. They would look up and they could see these victims on crosses dying. There, there, it was close enough in proximity that conversation could take place. And so this is, would have been where the people uh, would have been able to rant and rave and mock the Lord Jesus. It also served as a purpose, as a strong visual aid. You mess with Rome, you break the law, you disobey the state, then this is what you can expect. Fear and intimidation. Many Christians over the centuries uh, followed in the steps of Christ. They too were crucified. Peter refusing, as the legend is, refusing to be crucified as his Lord has to be crucified upside down. And so, as Paul said in Romans, we are sheep to the slaughter. It is better for us to obey God rather than men. And that can, in some cases, lead to severe persecution and execution. Uh, if it's the Lord's will. And Jesus was laid there, on the, as he laid down his life there on the, the cross, they offered him a drink. Uh, the gall, wine mixed with a, an intoxicant form to dull the pain, but Jesus refused what was offered to him. He wanted to be in full control 
of his faculties as he did the will of God. And I think this is something that's probably offensive to some, but I'll say it because you know how I am. I think we need to be careful what we put into our bodies. I think we should avoid as much use of drugs as possible. I don't care uh, personally whether it's prescribed by a doctor or not. Something that obstructs your normal thinking is probably something you should avoid. You should be reminded that all medicine is a form, is poison, it's just in small increments. And it does aid us on occasion. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily sin to, to take AIDS, but to be, to be on something that is messing with your mind and you're not clear in your thinking, you need to rethink what you're doing. Actually, uh, I was listening to a doctor just recently uh, what we have an epidemic in is the world. 70% of the world is low on vitamin D. And if you're from, for those of you who've done any reading at all, you know vitamin D is the key. It is the keystone to your health. It unlocks the door for the cells that, you know, your immune system. To be on low, low on vitamin D is to open the gate for death and disease. And so... Go home and take your vitamin D. <laughs> On the cross, they divided his garments as we've read there. And then he was crucified at 9 a.m., the uh, third hour, uh, as we have come to understand the way time was measured by both the Jews and the Romans being a little bit different. And over his head, this inscription placed, uh, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. In three languages, as we know from John 19, uh, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, because Jesus is king over all mankind, all ethnic groups he is lord of. So Jesus' accusation, Jesus' crime, what Jesus was guilty of is being who he was, the king the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, they mocked him for this, but in reality, it's a permanent rulership. Those kings and kings of the earth, it's only temporary for those guys. Christ's rulership, his kingship is from everlasting to everlasting. But let's look at closer here at the significance of the crucifixion and how it relates to us as believers. You know, beyond the atonement that we understand, the shedding of his blood that provided the atonement. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, the cross, the way to salvation is not to be preached with the wisdom of words. There are a lot of polished speakers in our day-to-day, but they, that's all they are. They can put together tremendous sermons, but there's no power, there's no anointing behind it because it is the wisdom of men. Paul, one of the most educated Pharisees of his time, he, as he said, he excelled above his, many of his contemporaries, would not rely upon his intellect. And you have read his epistles, Romans and others that, some things, as Peter said, are hard to understand. Very intellectual, very intelligent, 
But it's not about intelligence when it comes to things of God. It is about the spiritual understanding that needs to be imparted. Ezra, as he stood before the people, read the scriptures to the Israelites as they were coming back and rebuilding the second temple. And as, they minister, as he ministered the word, he read the word. And he gave a sense. He gave an understanding of what it meant. This is why we teach the Bible here. Some people think, well, you know, Calvary Chapel, their Sunday morning services are like going to Sunday school. Well, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. Yes. That's not a downer. You know, you can be preached at, but we are of the opinion that preaching is for the lost and teaching is for the saved. You don't need to be preached at. You need to be instructed. The grace of God, the mercy of God, how to take the scriptures and bring them and make them a reality in your life, to grow in grace and to learn the ways of the Lord. If it's done with the wisdom of words, according to Paul, then you nullify the work on the cross. It's sort of downplayed, it's sort of overlooked. And again, I just thank the Lord that this is Communion Sunday, and that we're not going to overlook it. It's just going to drive home what we're going to do here at the end of the service, and that is to observe Communion. Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How is it that the life of Christ is coming into your life and you are learning to die to yourself? How have you set yourself aside and allowed Jesus to be Lord in your life? How is God manifesting his will through your life to accomplish his purpose? That's what Paul was interested in. That's what we should be interested in. But I mean, how did the dolphins do the other day, you know? How did, you know, we talk about sports, we talk about a lot of things that don't really matter. But, and that's not, I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. I mean, maybe you don't like the Dolphins or some other sports team, that's fine. But really, do we ever get to the things that really matter? Are we just so shallow that we can't really engage in one, with one another to the things that really count in life? We should. And this is what Paul is talking about. I want to talk about the things that, at some point in time, that really matter. In life, the Bible tells us that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. This wasn't some made-up story. It really happened. Blood was really shed. He was really beaten beyond recognition. He was mocked, scourged, all of these things. But he was also obedient unto death. And through his death, Colossians 1.20 we have now made peace with God through the blood of his cross. And if we don't re- walk with this knowledge and in a remembrance of what Christ did for us, and then simply just acknowledge what he must have gone through, and just sort of contemplating it, and allowing it to just settle within our hearts, and we, or we don't live lives that reflect the grace of God, that is really as the Bible declares, putting him to an open shame, denying Christ and his lordship in my life, and yet professing to, believe, to be a believer is to shame, put him to open shame, Hebrews 6.6. 6. Let's remember that according to Colossians 2.14, he paid our debt. It was nailed to the cross. I should have been nailed to the cross. But Jesus was nailed there. He took the nails for me. 
He took the nails for you. There's no boasting. Everyone in heaven will be there and we'll all be on the same level. Well, we're all sinners saved by grace because Jesus took the nails. And because Jesus Christ allowed himself to be crucified and set himself apart and now imparted that same spirit to us, it is now our responsibility to allow ourselves to be crucified to this world. This is what John was trying to tell us in First John chapter 2, 15 through 18. Stop loving the world. It's already a given. We do. Our flesh is completely attached. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Hey, what are we, let's go play. We are attached. We all need something to eat. We all need something to wear. I'm glad you have clothes on. And it's entertainment in and of itself is not a sin. But when those are the driving force and they are the major preeminent thing in my life, it's out of order. I'm loving the world. And what does he say? If we have the love of the world within us, we have not the love of the Father. And let that never be named among the saints. Let us be filled with the love of the Father. So I have been crucified to the world and the world to me, Galatians 6.14. Now, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There may be those listening online. There may be someone sitting in here to think, oh, come on, this cross stuff. Really? I don't get it. I don't understand. When Jesus died on the cross. How? Wait, how does that forgive sins? How can that, what's that got? Well, I don't see the connection. Yeah, because we are born blind. We have no understanding of what God requires. We don't understand that life is in the blood and the soul that sins shall die. And it's only the blood that can make atonement. That is not something that, that is not common knowledge to the person outside the understanding of Scripture. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. It should become more clear. So it becomes a stumbling block, the cross does, for many, Galatians 5.11. And those who draw near the cross and live by the cross and desire to be crucified, as it were, who through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body so that we stop loving the world, we are persecuted by those who fail to do that. It's always, the persecution always comes, if you've watched history and you look, read the scriptures, where does really persecution come? Was it the Romans attacking Jesus all the time? Not really. I mean, they, they were, they've just become the, the tool of, of the Sanhedrin, if you will. It was the establishment. They're, it's the religious people. That is where our persecution will come. You don't, don't look for the world to clamp down on us, what they may, but it will, we'll be betrayed. True believers, sons and daughters of God, those who are led by the Spirit, we will be betrayed by religious people, by the religious establishment. You watch and see, it always rolls out that way. The cross is a stumbling block. Galatians 5.11 And actually, they're enemies of the cross. 
Philippians 3.18. So to be crucified with Christ, what does that really mean? Does it literally mean, you know, I look for some nails and I look for some wood and I make me a cross and then I hire somebody to drive them in? No. It, is, it means that I am now subject to the reign of Jesus Christ. I want nothing more than to do the will of my Savior. To be crucified with Christ is to give up your own desires. You realize that this life is so short. What is your life? It's that little dash between two dates. You know, you were born on this date, dash, and you died on this date. That is your life. And that little dash is very short. It is a short dash, if you will. It is a vapor, a plume of smoke that appears for just a moment and then gone. It's like a flower in the spring and then it fades and then it's gone. Understand and be reminded of the brevity of life. Now, our church body here, we've been reminded of it the last couple weeks, have we not? How short our lives are. We have to live with that thought in mind that, look, God has a plan and a purpose for my life. What is that plan? Let me finish it. Jesus said, I have finished the work, Father, that you've given me to do. Now, some of you, and I'm in that group, we're living longer than maybe we want to. It's because we've been distracted and we haven't got our job done yet. Because when you get your job done, you're gone. So that should be an exhortation. It's a lot better there than here, right? Just saying. It's to give up our own desires. Jesus said in Matthew ten thirty eight. He who does not take up his cross, the instrument of death, and follow me is not worthy of me. If you're not willing to suffer and deny self to follow the king, he's just saying, you're not worthy. We think that, that we can say that, well, I'm just not worthy, and that's, a, that's humility. Well, that's not humility if you're not willing to die to yourself. That's pride. Pride keeps me from becoming all that God intends me to be. It is placing me, I, before the will of the Lord. That's what it means to be crucified, to give up your desires. See, here's just a little hint. God made you, he made me. He has a specific purpose that we don't understand, but he does. And he knows in making you the way he made you, that is how you're going to experience the greatest fulfillment in life. You will experience no greater joy, no greater love, no greater fulfillment than doing what God created you to do. People, how many Christians live unsatisfied life, lives? They just, they're not happy, they're not joyful, they're, they seem to be depressed a lot. Might be because they're low in vitamin D. I, no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm not a doctor, but I mean, just saying, you know, to the degree that I do the will of God is to the degree that I will experience fulfillment. And that is important. Jesus said, whoever comes after me must, must take up his cross, Matthew 16, 24. And Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me again, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Self-denial. 
This isn't like the monks going in to the closet with, you know, and flogging themselves. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about our selfish ambition, the I, the me, that wants to exalt self and call the shots. It's humbling ourselves. This is what Paul was trying to communicate to the believers in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So the war within, I have my old man, the flesh, the fallen nature, which I will hassle me and be with me until I leave this world. But then as a Christian, I'm born again. I have the new nature, the new man. These two are within side every born-again believer. And there's this war between the old man and the new man. A constant battle and choice must be made to which one of these I will serve. If I serve my flesh, I will not be pleasing to God. If I serve God through His Spirit, I will be pleasing to Him. But we have received the Holy Spirit to give us power. Jesus did everything by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember as we started here, Paul said, declared to be the Son of God with power. As a man, Jesus Christ was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on later in Romans and he said, who through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body. It is through the power of the Spirit that we live crucified lives. It is through the power of the Spirit that we put out of business doing any business with our flesh. And when we fail to handle it correctly, and we fail to crucify the flesh, we have provision at the cross by the blood of Christ. If we are to be healed, if we are to be delivered, if we are to be set free, it is because we are confessing our sins and repenting. Christians don't just repent once. <laughs> the more you get to know yourself, you realize you're probably repenting of something each and every day. Some thought, some attitude, some word was crossing a line and thought that wasn't right. And you just, but it takes confession. So we have, you know, theologians that sort of break this stuff down. And it does help sometimes. You see yourselves positionally in Christ. So you are in Christ, you are forgiven. You, if you sin and make mistakes, you don't stop being a son or daughter of God. You're still His. What does sin actually do? Sin is destructive. It's very hard on people. Guilt destroy, is a destructive thing. Sin does not break relationship. It merely breaks fellowship with God. I no longer hear from God. I no longer sense His presence. And the longer I let something like that go, it can become a stronghold in my life where I no longer have the victory. I no longer overcome the fleshly attitudes and all. And I can actually dive in and live into sin. And there comes a point where God will you know, chastise those who continue to live in sin. How does a person get free? How do we deal with that? By simple confession, 
That's just simply telling it like it is and being honest with God. God, I have done this. I have sinned. And then going to a person that I may have sinned against and say, I did this to you and I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? That is confession. That is something that's really, (gasps) you talk about, you get that reaction. We're not comfortable with that because we're dominated by the pride of life. We are much more self-righteous than we ought to be. It's because we are looking at it through the lens of men rather than the lens of Scripture, which is God's point of view. There is none that have not sinned, but we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we need to repent regularly and crucify the old man. Verses 27 through 32, I won't spend a lot more time because I usually front load the important part on my sermons because I have most of your attention at that time. Verse 27. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and the other on his left. So the scriptures was fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. That's Isaiah 53. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, "Ah, You destroy the temple and build it in three days? (laughs) Save yourself. Come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves and scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. The Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. This mocking. Can you imagine how painful that must have been for Jesus to... Here are these jeers, this constant haranguing and twist, taking his words and twisting them because they did not understand because of the blindness of their heart. It was, you know, his inability to prove himself. <laughs> I mean, how much more proof do you need? He's raised the dead. He's fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies completely in his first coming. What he needed to do to demonstrate his authentic reality of being the son of God they thought him doing some dynamic heroic thing from coming down the cross you know what I don't think they would have believed even at that point as the story of a rich man and Lazarus they have Moses and the prophets let them hear that if they cannot receive the Old Testament scriptures neither will they believe the one be raised from the dead I mean Lazarus for goodness sake, a few days prior to the crucifixion, was raised from the dead. Did they receive that witness? So if Jesus would have come down off the cross, they would have ran like little cowards, I'm sure. It would not have converted them. Man is rarely converted by the miraculous. It is through the word of God that we receive faith. You know, miracles are great, We pray for them. We want to see them. They're necessary. They're important. But that's not how we build our faith. My ministry, my teaching ministry is very simple. It is like Isaiah's. I learned it from him. Line upon line. Precept upon precept. A little here, a little there. That's how your faith grows. That when the storms of life hit, you are rock solid because you're built upon Jesus Christ and his word. That's how it works. So let them mock on. Verses 33 through 41, Jesus dies. And 
Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled the sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so when the centurion who had stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the less, and Joseph and Salome who followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This darkness that lasted from noon till three o'clock, I can't imagine what the establishment must have been thinking, what the Romans must have been thinking. This darkness, you know, for the Jews uh, would... absolutely caused them to think about their history and what happened in Egypt at the time of the uh, Passover and all the plagues that were going on. There was three days of darkness that came over the land of Egypt uh, just prior to the Passover. That was the ninth plague there. And what was the last plague? The death of the firstborn. So here we have the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, the death of God's firstborn, the Lord Jesus Christ, taking our place. God, it was God's announcement to the people, the inhabitants of the city, to the establishment, to Rome, to the world. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our sin was being judged at that moment. That is the time period in which he who knew no sin became sin, that you and I might be made the righteousness of God. This is what we refer to as the great exchange. Jesus Christ became what we are, filthy sinners, wretched, deserving of eternal destruction and punishment away from the presence of God. He became what I am, that I might become what He is, righteous and accepted. So His righteousness is transferred to each of our accounts when we confess Him as Lord and Savior. When we confess that we are lost and we need forgiveness, and we ask God to forgive us, He completely nails all those things that we're, we've done against God, even things you can't remember and that you're ignorant of. We're nailed to the cross. And then He hands you the gift of righteousness and writes your name on the book of life the annals of heaven have your, in the book of life have now have your name, those who have repented and turned to Christ. What a tremendous gift. But this is what was going on in that three-hour period of darkness. And for the unbelievers, it was confusion. Now, in the Greek, Elijah sounds a little bit like the Amer- um, um, what do I say? 
the Aramaic, Eloi. So they're, they're probably not, his mouth is so dry. He's dehydrated to the max. He probably can barely open his mouth and move his tongue. So therefore the water, the, the liquid to wet his tongue so he could utter, he could speak. So there was that confusion there. It wasn't about Elijah coming at all. It was enough for Jesus to utter these last words. It is finished. Jesus had complete control of his life from the very beginning until the end. He released his spirit when the job was done. He knew that the Father's will had been completed. Well, I want to rehearse these statements that he made upon the cross. Most of us are familiar with the seven, but I've pulled them together because I just, again, these are, this is something that we seem to only do this like once a year around, you know, the time of the Passover and the resurrection, right? And the crucifixion sort of kind of gets missed a little bit. So I think it's good, at least visiting this again. First saying on the cross was, we're all familiar with it, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Second was, today you shall be with me in paradise. That's Luke 23, 43. The first one was 23, 34. John 19, 26 and 27. Woman, behold thy son. Behold your mother. So those are the three that were uttered on the cross before the darkness. The remaining four after and during the hour of darkness from noon to three. As he's expressing his agony, uh, it'd be Psalm 22, one, my God, my God, as we've read there, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back when, on Jesus, so to speak, when he became the sin offering. And so, as we said before, the darkness symbolizes God's judgment as the Father had to forsake him. And then, number six, John nineteen twenty-eight as well, I thirst. And the soldier lifted it to his dry mouth. And then number seven, Luke twenty-three forty-six, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus laid down his life for us. He was willing to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. So at the death of Christ, there's three things in particular that happened that are noteworthy. Number one, the veil was torn. And Secondly, there was an earthquake that rumbled Jerusalem and the surrounding area, splitting the rocks, it tells us in Matthew 27. And then it says that the tombs were opened. Now, the tombs were opened, I think, at the death of Christ, but they were not raised until the following Sunday, a couple days later. That's Matthew 27, 52, and 53. Uh, why do I say that? Because Christ was the first one raised from the dead, the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, right? And then thereafter those came forth. So when Jesus rose from the dead, then the others came out of their graves and were walking around Jerusalem. That must have been a frightful thought, sight from some. So this is a picture of the 
fulfillment of the Feast of First Fruits that, that they celebrated, Leviticus 23.10. We see the pictures and the shadows there. And let's not miss it. It fits in right here. It was the coming harvest. You know, the people would bring a handful of the grain harvest at the first Feast of First Fruits. So these first, the first resurrection here, Jesus being the first and then a few others. This is, again, they would have understood that. Those who were filled with the Spirit, those <clears throat> like Simon, uh, the, you know, in the temple there that uh, recognized Messiah when he came, and, and others who were loyal to Christ, even though they were sort of hiding it. They understood the Scriptures. They would have seen it, this fulfilled, the first fruits coming out of the out of the grave there. Well, let's think about this veil being torn. Well, what's the big deal? Rip a curtain. What do you do? Well, this wasn't just any curtain. This veil in the temple was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 10 inches thick. 72 braids, 24 cords, and it took at least 300 priests to handle it. Something like that. So what, how important is this? Why, what's the significance of when Jesus gave up his spirit, it was torn, it says, from top to bottom. Now, there's nobody, you know, if you, possibly, if it would be possible to rip it from the bottom to the top if you had enough guys and enough power. Not likely. But this was from top to bottom, which means Yahweh, the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, ripped the veil. What is... God saying, God left the temple. He opened the door for everyone who would come in to the Holy of Holies now by faith. The usefulness of the Levitical order was complete. Hebrews goes on to tell us that it now was obsolete. The old system has passed away. We no longer approach God through the law. No need for it. It all passed away. It was torn. And yet the access into God's presence is now through the veil of the Lord Jesus Christ, his flesh. We come to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus opened a new and living way. Do you see? We have so much more than we realize. You don't have to drag your lamb, your bull to church. Aren't you glad? I'm glad that I don't have to butcher every week. Frankly, that would just be, I'd have to hire some help or something. I mean, we don't do that anymore. But we should appreciate what was done through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The terms of coming into the holy place as stated before are very simple. Repentance and faith. Turning to God in faith, believing that God will forgive you in the person of Jesus Christ because that's why he died. God, I believe the Lord is so merciful. I think he's looking for any, any sliver of brokenness and, and desire to be right with him to, to just extend his mercy. It's apart from works. None of us here can be, ever be good enough. You, you are saved by faith in what Jesus Christ did for you. That's, it's just that simple. Don't add anything else to it. It's not about being good. It's not about... Any kind of good deeds or good works. He was buried. 
we won't spend a lot of time because we'd usually do that when we do the resurrection. It's the day before the Sabbath, so everything, you really understand that these guys were waiting for Jesus to die because it very well could have if Joseph and Nicodemus hadn't have been prepared because nightfall, they had to have enough of this stuff together before he did die. And a lot of crucified victims lasted for two, three days. They did not want this to happen over the Sabbath. I mean, the Lord had everything perfectly worked out. The timing is impeccable. They had enough time to ask for the body. If this had been, hypothetically, allowed to go on, Jesus' body could have been thrown in the garbage heap in the Hinnom Valley, like a, just like they did every other criminal. God did not allow his Holy One to see any corruption. He was taken care of. I just, I wanted to, to, to not pass over that. There's, there's, we need to handle our, the, the death of our loved ones with dignity. And, and, of course, Jesus was handled that way. Took his body down off the cross, wrapped it in and laid him in a tomb. And you can read that portion. So I'm trying to finish up for our time's sake here. So I want to re- finish with a couple things here just to rehearse and have, and have harmonized the Gospels here. How this whole thing happened, the death of Christ, the significance of its importance, and we will never get beyond the basics. This is one of the basics. This is why we take the time to remind ourselves. He arrived, first of all, at Golgotha. He refused the offer of wine. He was nailed to the cross between two thieves. He gave his first cry on the cross, Father, forgive them. The soldiers took his garments and left him naked on the cross, and they cast lots for those garments. The Jews mocked Jesus. He conversed with two of the thieves. He gave his second cry from the cross, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He spoke the third time, woman, your son, son, your mother. Darkness came over from three to, from noon to three. He gave his fourth cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His fifth cry, I am thirsty. He drank, tasted, if you will, the wine and the vigor from the sponge, and then he cried out, it is finished. And then the seventh thing, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He demissed his spirit at his own will. The temple curtain was torn in two, and the Roman soldiers got the message, if nobody else did, whoa, whoa, surely this was the Son of God. They crucified a lot of people. Nobody. They had never witnessed an event like this. And for that Roman soldier who was a pagan and thought Caesar was God, worshipped as divinity, for him to say, surely this was the Son of God, tells you the impact it made upon him. Now, in closing as we... Get ready for communion. As you know, we observe this once a month as the body. And the guys are going to come in a little bit here, and they're going to pass it out. For those of you visiting, we have it's a two, two little seals here. Just be careful. The top one is real thin. That underneath it is the wafer, and then the bigger seal underneath that will open up the juice. Be careful because it pulls hard. Uh, just to, don't want to spoil the moment here. Just a reminder as we close here, and uh, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and just this sort of pulls it all together, the importance of the death of Christ. And 
and what really happened from uh, God's point of view and why he set up the old system for us to see and understand what his son would do. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And the idea there is simply they did the outward, but they could never penetrate deep enough. And the deepest part of a man is the conscience. These offerings that they offered could never purge the conscience. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that when I confess my sins, that God relieves the guilt from my conscience. I tell you what, guilt's a hard thing to live with, isn't it? It just drives you crazy. That's what the power of the blood is. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit is also witness to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In this offering of Christ, not only was Jesus the high priest that made the offering, but he himself was our offering. How unique, how precious is the blood of Christ. He did this so that mankind could be redeemed. How much better is the blood of the Lamb, the true Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, than the blood of of simple sheep and bulls. Jesus offered it through the eternal spirit without spot. He was sinless. He has the power... His blood has the power to cleanse the conscience from dead works. Nothing else can take away guilt like the blood of Christ. And it has the power to deliver to you and to me an eternal inheritance. By our simple faith, we receive eternal life. Can you think of a greater gift than to know that when you close your eyes and you breathe your last, that you will be in eternity with God? What a gift, eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you take the cup, 
And today is no different than any other time. Husbands, fathers, leaders of your home, those otherwise, you're welcome to lead your family in this. The guys are going to pass out the elements. And you just get your family together (laughs) as you see fit. And you pray and you lead them in, in, in this time of communion. If you're by yourself, it's all on you. Take the cup. Take the bread. We've, we've all remembered now what Jesus did for us. And remember that it is a cup of blessing. It is a cup of healing. It is a cup of eternal life. That's what it all symbolizes, all in the person done through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, as we take and partake of these elements, Lord, may your spirit bear witness with each one of us and encourage us and strengthen us, Lord. There's nothing magic about the, the grape juice or the wafer. What's true is your love and the power of your Holy Spirit that indwells us. So make these truths that we've been reminded of once again this morning a reality in our lives. We want to be in the will of God in all that we do. We want to live and walk in the Spirit, God. May you grant this in Jesus' name. Amen.